0: This is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by John Holbein, who is the co author with Sunshine Hiligas of Making Young Voters Converting Civic Attitudes into Civic Action. This book was published in it, by Cambridge University Press in 2020, and it is a really interesting and, and broad explanation and discussion of youth voting attitudes and, to some degree, some of the questions around. How young people vo- act in politics, and translating that into voting. But I'm going to let John tell us a lot about that. First, I'd like to welcome John Holbein to the New Books in Political Science podcast and ask him to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this particular project with Sunshine Heligus. Hi, John.
1: Hi, Lily. Thanks for having me. Um, so I'm an assistant professor of uh, public policy, politics, and education at the Frank Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy at the University of Virginia. Uh, And my co-author, Sunshine Hilligus, is a professor of political science at uh, Duke University. So we came to this uh, project when I was a graduate student at Duke uh, there with Sunshine. And we were uh, talking one day about um, young people, about our experience in in the classroom specifically, talking to young people. Now, um, the types of students who are taking political science classes are not representative of young people as a whole. But it was just interesting that both of us seemed to have a similar experience in talking to young people about uh, levels, their levels of political engagement. And many of them would express to us that they were interested in politics, that they, they followed it on the news, they shared uh, articles with their uh, followers on Twitter or other uh, social media, um, and that they cared about politics um, more generally but that they didn't actually show up and cast a ballot. That Many of them uh, sort of had levels of engagement or levels of interest in politics, but didn't actually translate that into engagement and active voting. And so we said to ourselves, what, what gives? You know, what's, what's going on here? Why is it that there's this disconnect between young people who seem to want to uh, uh, work to affect change and to uh, uh, work for good government and, and, and uh, uh, hold government accountable, when it uh, falls short. Um, but they fail to show up and actually do so. So that's the genesis of this book. It was actually in our experience in the classroom and thinking about why are young people that we, we interacted with on a very uh, individual uh, uh, level uh, uh, did not engage in politics. And so that's how the, this book sort of uh, came about was this, this puzzle of why young people don't turn out in, in American elections.
0: And and of course, you know, we hear about this every election season that that, you know, there are a lot of young people out there and people on the news and pundits always tell us, yes, there are a lot of young people out there, but they never vote. Um, this is like a sort of constant evergreen commentary. Um, and yet your research suggests that they they are more involved in politics than most people give them credit for being. Um, But there's a lot of literature about sort of the lack of voting by young people. There's literature in political science and in other fields as well. What is this general literature about in terms of pinpointing or at least discussing why young people don't vote? What's the general consensus there?
1: Yeah. So there's a a lot of uh, excellent work that focuses on young people. It turns out it is actually um hard to study this this group um you know uh the, the fact that they uh answer surveys at lower rates than 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 older citizens makes it a little bit challenging uh, but there is really good work out there uh that explores the many reasons why uh young people uh, potentially don't cast a ballot and one of our goals in this book was to really um bring together the insights that uh, that literature uh has given us and to expand upon that and to sort of say let's try and write the sort of uh, coherent narrative and story of why young people don't cast a ballot in the United States. And one of the one of the misnomers that comes a little bit into that literature, that academic literature, but is very present in popular accounts of sort of explaining why youth don't turn out and cast a ballot, is that they're disinterested or apathetic toward po- towards politics. Um, you don't have to look hard to find examples of, of uh, uh, pundits uh, bemoaning uh, millennials being sort of selfish and disengaged and disinterested in, in contributing uh, their, their voice to uh, uh, elections. And what we found um, in, in really digging deep into the survey data across uh, many different survey samples, across various different measures of, of, of engagement and sort of psychological interest in um uh, participating in politics, young people score very high. Um, if you look at level their levels of political interest, it's very high. And, and that is especially so in recent years. You know, a full uh, seven out of 10 uh, young people will say that they're interested in politics. A full eight out of 10 will say that uh, they intend to vote, um, but they don't actually follow through on that sort of expressed interest, that expressed desire to participate. So that, sort of, um, that really was kind of a little bit surprising to us to sort of see that this um, very uh, common narrative about young people doesn't actually hold up with data, at least on the measures of political interest that we have and that are often used you know, by political scientists and scholars of political behavior. Young people seem to be hooked and to be engaged in politics, sort of at least psychologically, where they really struggle is in the follow through of translating that into action uh, at the ballot box.
0: And and you you sort of talk about this in the book, and you you break the book up into two parts, um, talking first about like this question of follow through, um, which takes you and and your co-author to some degree a little bit outside of some of the political science literature itself, um, and then you talk next about the sort of the policies that might draw more follow through. Um, so, can you first talk about this—this this, what you refer to as non-cognitive skills—that have an impact on the potential follow-through from interest to actually voting?
1: Yeah. So, uh, to do this, we sort of said to ourselves, "Okay, what do we know as social scientists, uh, more generally, about what stops people from sort of following through on their good intentions?" And there's a whole literature in in economics and uh, psychology and education and human development that thinks about these uh, issues in a variety of different contexts. Not so much in terms of voting, maybe surprisingly, um, uh, uh, but uh, one of the things we sort of thought about early on is, well, maybe, you know, we often think about voting as sort of this distinct and pro-social act, and it's sort of... Uh, different from other uh, forms of, of human uh, behavior, we said, well, maybe maybe it's not. Maybe voting is very similar, actually, to like exercising or um, studying in that most people feel like, oh, it's kind of a good idea that I should be doing this. I, uh, I get some sort of psychological pleasure from doing this. Uh, I, I know that people around me think I, or there's a social norm that I should be doing this but I, I still don't follow through. So maybe voting is similar to these types of behaviors. So in digging into the lat literature, it's, it's pretty clear uh, that um, the types of attributes or the types of people who follow through on their intention to exercise or to work hard in school or to succeed in the labor force are the types of people who have um, higher levels of self-control and uh, higher social skills. So they're uh, in uh, sort of uh, um, intertwined with other people who they work well with, who help reinforce uh, social norms uh, uh, for the behaviors that they're uh, um, going to be doing. Um, and then they also have high levels of self-control, uh, that, they're there, uh, that they have high levels of self-regulation uh, in their uh, thoughts, motivations, emotions, and behavior, that they can control those and that they can sort of keep going when obstacles get in the way. Um, and so, what we found was that some of these measures of non-cognitive skills—grit, uh, uh, delayed gratification, other batteries of self-regulation—number uh, um, one are really related to one another. People who have uh, sort of one of these skills tend to have uh, them as a bundle. But moreover, the people who have developed these non-cognitive skills, these ability to keep going when obstacles or distractions or difficulties get in the way. Those people are actually much more likely to cast a ballot as well. And we think that this sort of um, should make a little bit of sense that uh, individuals when the uh, election day comes and say they've had a busy day at work and they're they're tired and uh, maybe their kid is sick or they have um, other things that they need to do at home or Netflix is beckoning uh, to them. Uh, that um, individuals who sort of say, no, I'm going to keep following through and I'm going to push through to achieve my goal of being an active citizen are much more likely to to do so um, or to when they show up at the ballot box and see a long line, they say, okay, well, I'm going to persevere. Even though this is an obstacle that's in the way, I'm going to keep going. So we can think about this before election day too, that individuals who have these attitudes of perseverance and self-control are more likely to keep going when they face an obstacle, say uh, their voter registration form is returned, or they find other um, electoral rules to be uh, cumbersome and then and, and, um, confusing. So that's sort of our effort to dig into, okay, well, we know that some people actually do overcome the barriers that they face. Some people do follow through. What What makes them different? What separates them from Individuals who struggle to follow through a little bit. And what we found across a lot of different data sets, lots of different uh, samples of uh, younger and uh, older people as well, uh, individuals who happen to develop these skills were much more likely to follow through and cast a ballot than those that weren't.
0: And so this also goes to a lot of the literature that I've, you know, I've seen and I've talked to my students about and I've talked to my colleagues about with regard to the sort of habit of voting. That if you sort of have the capacity to overcome some of these potentially stumbling blocks put in front of you the first time that you do it, then you're also more likely to develop the habit of it, sort of like going to the gym, right. um, I would assume.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it, it, it's so All of us sometimes wish that we had more of a habit in that in that area. Um yeah I think that's right. I mean, I think it's these things can be self reinforcing right? What we know we have a good uh sense from a lot of different studies with different uh, methodological approaches that once you get a young person started voting, that tends to reinforce itself right there There are gains from just experiencing the act of voting from knowing sort of what it's going to be like. It takes it it sort of demystifies it and we actually heard this a lot from um uh, young people that we interviewed for the book. Was that um, before they cast the about, the ones who were successful in casting about, before they cast the about, they were sort of intimidated. They didn't know what to expect. And then they went and actually uh, filled out a registration form and they said, oh, that, that was a little bit easier than I thought it was going to be. And they cast the about and they were like, oh, that's, I know how to do this now. Maybe I could do that again. So that's totally, uh, I think that's totally real that, that once you get a young person started voting to begin with, That tends to uh, feed on itself in many cases. However, the problem is that many young people just don't get set on that path to begin with. That it's just that it sort of works, that that habit works. It's, um, you know, sort of it works its magic in the negative direction that they don't vote to begin with. And then that that perpetuates throughout their lives.
0: And, And that's also one of the aspects that you point out in the research that the habit forming goes in both directions that if you do form the habit to vote if you overcome the the barriers and you get used to doing it then you keep doing it and if you never then you form the habit of never doing it um even if you are politically excited or um somehow engaged otherwise um so that this habit con- connection is important to understanding also what young people are doing at this point um to to ask another question about this question this issue of non cognitive skills and the role that um this has with regard to voting as a sort of sort of conclusion to or add on to um sort of civic engagement you also note and you sort of mention this that there are many hurdles um And there's a lot of research, again, about the hurdles to voting in the United States compared to other countries. Can you talk about what you saw in your research with regard to questions like voter registration, um, you know, having clear addresses, a lot of these aspects that are in place because we also have different voting determinants in different states?
1: Yeah, so we um it, it it's pretty clear uh, to us based on the evidence that we present in the book that young people are especially sensitive to how complex and difficult it is to cast a ballot. Um so it, it, we we come at this from two different directions. So one was the qualitative interviews, just talking with young people. Um so a mix of 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 young people who did and didn't cast a ballot across uh, several states. Um and and what we heard again and again was well, I'm kind of confused by this process. This this doesn't seem easy or straightforward. It's not something that I typically do. Many of these young people who are going to, um, say, college or, or getting a job directly out of high school are coming out of an environment. Uh, this is not universally true, but many of them are coming out of an environment where filling out forms is kind of something that their parents do, right? So the thought of transitioning into adult life where uh, one has to fill out a voter registration form, it's just a new thing for them. They're in a, in a part of their lives where they are becoming adults, right? And, and that, part, that process is not easy or straightforward. And so when, op, when difficulties come, when, uh, say, if they forgot to uh, sign their voter registration form and it gets kicked back to them, that might be enough to just stop them right in the process because of the uh, 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 the sort of the newness of it and the difficulty uh, 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 in other aspects of their life It's just a time of of tumult and, and change where many of them are moving and coming into their own starting uh, intense work or uh, schooling options so that we that came through again and again in our interviews with young people. It was just very clear to us that voting was just um one of the many things that young people had to deal with. And they found that process to be just a little confusing and overwhelming. And in fact, we found a study that um, was done before our work that that looked at voter registration forms that really coded up uh, a, bun- a sample of young people who were sending in voter registration forms and looked at them and saw if they were doing it correctly. And they found in that study, I, I don't have the citation off my offhand, but they found that about half of the young people in their sample who said in a voter registration form made a mistake on their voter registration form that would kick it back uh, to, uh, to young people. So this is, this is a potential choke point for young people. And we saw this in the data as well. Voter registration is a barrier that young people um, find to be um, difficult to overcome. It might seem very simple and straightforward to those of us who've navigated this process before and are, Um, uh, very savvy about the the ins and outs of of registering to vote. Uh, But for young people, uh, voter registration is a challenge. So we see that uh, reforms that make voter registration easier uh, and more accessible, uh, reforms like online uh, voter registration, which uh, allows young people to register online in a a format that they're uh, perhaps more used to, uh, same-day registration that allows them to register when they show up at the ballot box, if they have for perhaps forgotten to do so or made an error in their voter registration, had a kick back, uh, And then pre-registration reforms that help young people uh, register when they're at home with their parents, uh, often reinforce that with um, uh, other uh, uh, help in the classroom uh, and at the DMV. Those types of reforms that make the voter registration process more accessible, better timed. Uh, and um, uh, allowed if a a young person has forgotten to to register to vote or just missed out on registering to vote before, say, a registration deadline. Those types of reforms, though they have um, modest effects on um, older citizens, tend to have pretty large and robust effects on young people. So uh, pre-registration increases youth turnout somewhere on the order of 3 to 6 percentage points. Same-day registration is a bit more than that, and online registration uh, is a little bit less. Uh, than that, but when put together, uh, these uh, it, it became very clear to us that uh, any reform many reforms that um, uh, make voter registration easier tend to have um, larger impacts on young people. So that's um, you know, both in our conversations with young people and in, in the empirical evidence, uh, it suggests that uh, young people find voter registration to be confusing, intimidating, overwhelming, and reforms that make voter registration easier tend to help young people.
0: And and you know I, I live in the state of Wisconsin, and so we've had a bunch of changes in the last just couple of years with regard to voting, um, registration, um, pre-voting, um, and just sort of trying to navigate that without necessarily having ever done it before. Also, seems like it might be intimidating to a twenty-year-old who sort of is interested, but isn't quite sure like who to ask also, I'm assuming.
1: Yeah, that's right. So many of them, uh, so actually seeing a lot of organizations now that are trying to mobilize young people move from this space, um, where they're sort of saying, like, oh, we've got to get young people interested. Let's get some more celebrities to get out and just convince them that voting is so cool and so hip and the thing that they want to do. Moving from that world to a to a model where it's it's really like helping them uh, fill out voter registration forms, providing them with a mentor who has navigated this process before. So there's a lot of peer-to-peer uh type of interventions going on right now. Um yet to be tested for their effects, but it's it's moving from a world where we're focusing on sort of political interest as the entry point, moving to a world where we're thinking about follow through and the actual obstacles that young people tell us that they face, which are seem kind of arcane and mundane and sort of like on the ground. It's like, oh, well, maybe just helping them fill out their voter registration form and send that in, maybe that's going to help, right? So that it's it, it's a different way of trying to get young people actively engaged that focuses on follow through instead of. interest.
0: And that, again, is one of the points of the, your, your, your research sort of highlights that is not necessarily absent, but it's not one that has been fully researched in a lot of the political science scholarship prior to what you were looking at. Um, from what I can see, although I'm not an expert on sort of this area in political science scholarship, um, but I was really intrigued by what you were finding in terms of some of these questions around um, the, the non-cognitive skills um, and, and how those are impacting particularly young people who might be a little bit nervous about doing this for the first time. Um, And different than when you get your driver's license, you actually have to have a lot of driving, um, you know, sort of learning behind the wheel. (laughs) There isn't any voter learning behind the wheel going on for the most part.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, it's sort of, um, there's two different ways that you could take this, right? One is, well, you know, to increase voter turnout, we could enhance young people's non-cognitive skills. We could teach them to, to keep going when... Difficult things arise. Maybe that has payoffs outside of just the political realm, but also, like you were saying, maybe it's just giving them opportunities to practice as well. So that you know, maybe, maybe it's easier to sort of say, like, okay, let's do a demonstration in in, in high school classrooms about what it's going to be like when they show up at the ballot box, what they're going to be asked for, what the ballots going to look like, um, what the voting booths going to look like. Things like that. Um, And there's actually some good evidence um, from uh, the first-time voter program that we cite in the paper, uh, a randomized control trial, that shows that simply going into a a high school classroom, spending about 45 minutes demonstrating with a, a voting booth and a ballot, providing young people the opportunity to register to vote there and then, and then talking about the importance of voting, had some, pretty, had, some, had some pretty big effects on youth turnout, right? So there are these like two different ways that we could take this, given that we know that follow-through is a problem, right? We could enhance uh, young people's non-cognitive skills. That turns out uh, to increase voter participation, uh, but also giving them a chance to practice and to become, uh, to sort of bring down the psychological barriers to to voting, to make it a little bit easier in that regard. That that actually helps as well, right? So this, I think that that solving the youth uh, turnout problem is not a, there's no silver bullet to this. So we have to think about like how do we both simultaneously make the voting process easier from like you know using same day registration, pre registration, online registration, those kinds of things. We also be thinking about how do we bring down these psycho, psych- psychic or psychological costs. The young people face, the the, the sort of demystifying the voting process and making it easier and less intimidating to them, isn't just about sort of the election rules and election laws that they face, but it's about the experience itself and and helping them experience that brings down the cost of, uh, of voting in a way that has sort of not been appreciated. You know, when we say as political scientists, the cost of voting, that's almost synonymous with like election laws, right? The cost of voting is much more nuanced and much more complex, especially for young people. It's internal to them as well. It's the the way that they think about politics and how intimidated or not intimidated they are with it. So this is a multifaceted approach that we're arguing for in the book. Yes, we should make voting laws easier. There are lots of young people who are disenfranchised by those. Yes, we should do interventions, perhaps in the classroom and households that make uh, the psychological costs of voting go down. And yes, we should be teaching young people uh, to persevere and to keep going in the types of, uh, which is going to be really important in the types of like states where um, election laws aren't going to be made easier in the foreseeable future. Right, We can't just abandon those young people in places where election laws are actually getting more restrictive, more difficult, more confusing. Uh, I think there is something to be said about teaching young people to keep going to overcome those obstacles in those places is not putting blame on them to any respect. But it's also trying to to help them, given the current political climate where they live.
0: And and again, you know, as 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 we've talked about already, that young people tend to also be somewhat mobile. So they may move, you know, from home to college and then from college to someplace else. So they're moving across various states that have different laws. And and so then they have to adjust e- each time and figure out the new path, um, even in the midst of having some of those laws change, which also makes it harder to develop that habit, um, which, you know, I think some of your your research is highlighting, you know, these these difficulties, these barriers to entry. Um, but you also talk about in the book, the second part of the book, um, this question of policies beyond the sort of change in voter um and sort of voter access, um, to try to pull people into, um, sort of voting as part of their political participation and interest. Can you talk a little bit about how that came into, um, the dialogue within the, the book's conversation?
1: Yeah. So what we wanted to do in this book was provide, um, useful information for, uh, folks who are on the ground trying to um, get young people engaged. So it was really um uh you know I have a public policy background. I'm at a policy school now. I my my degree is in uh, a PhD in public policy. I really cared about sort of saying, okay, well, it's great to say that, you know, um we've non cognitive skills matter and we've we've um sort of underappreciated that in the literature, but we wanted to think about how to transfer that um to the policy world as well. So that's that's where um section two of the book that thinks about what types of reforms that we could do to increase uh, the chances that young people cast about. That's where it, where it came from. Um, and, and I have sort of a, a side interest in, in education policy. I, I've done some work on um, various aspects of, 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 of school choice and uh, school accountability. So I, I, I was coming to this book thinking a lot about like, okay, well, schools are a key touch point that many uh, young people, uh, are, uh, most all young people go through, um, and they spend most of their time there. Um, what is being done right now in schools to uh, fulfill the the mission of of public schools, especially to make active and informed young citizens? So it's it's very easy, and we we talk about this in the book. We did a pretty extensive review of uh, of, of the history of, of of civics education in the United States and the vision that was put forth as far back as the founding fathers, and to common uh, um, uh, more recent thought leaders uh, today and, and the vision was that schools would um, act as this catalyst for young people to be informed and and engaged in, in in self-governance right that this would be a public education system was you know at its roots uh, advocated for because it would help um, uh, form a bedrock for citizenship um, and so uh, that's um, one of the key chapters in section two says how are schools doing right now? Where is it that they could improve? Uh, what what effect does uh, you know taking a civics class uh, today have on the chances that young people vote? Uh, it turns out that just taking sort of the the status quo civics course that um, most young people are exposed to doesn't have much of an impact doesn't taking more of those types of classes doesn't increase the odds that they vote but uh, being exposed to uh, uh, sort of applied learning programs, uh, programs that teach them how to be engaged in politics, yes, uh, sort of by giving them uh, you know, voter registration forms, doing the mechanics of, of helping them register and practice voting, that, that's important. But also more broadly, the types of schools that are um, trying to live up to their, their mission as, as, as public schools of making schools mini labs for democracy giving young people opportunities to and and assigning them uh, as part of their curricula to get out in the community and to work as teams to solve uh, problems on the ground, uh, to meet with elected officials, to um, discuss contemporary political issues in the classroom together. Uh, These types of programs uh, that we see in in some places in the United States and also um, elsewhere uh, sort of springing up, have, as it turns out, a pretty big impact on the chances that young people will participate in politics. So we cite in the, the book um, a, a great study that I think is um, uh, 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 by a group um, from Mathematica uh, that looked at the effect of democracy prep charter schools. And uh, democracy charter schools are a controversial thing, but um, democracy prep charter schools have a really interesting model in that uh, they make a democratic engagement uh, a part of the curricula uh, for young people, it's, it's woven through everything students do um, in all of their classes, of sort of engaging with uh, social problems, trying to overcome them, uh, thinking about um, uh, what's being talked about in the news uh, today and as, as it relates to, to political debates. Um, and it turns out that, that, that this study found um, comparing students who lotteried in uh, to democracy prep charter schools to those who didn't lottery in that um, being exposed to this model of sort of active learning increased the chances that they voted uh, later on in their lives by a pretty substantial amount so this is this is uh, I think a second path when we're thinking about policies we often think about electoral reforms and we often forget the classroom right because um, some of the early work on civics education showed n- not promising effects right uh, uh, so back in the 1960s there were um, political scientists who sort of uh, uh, the early studies on civics education were not promising. so we sort of dropped that line of inquiry in the book. We're sort of trying to say, okay, let's pick up where those studies left off and there, there've been some work uh, since then, but um, uh, let's pick up and, and think about, okay, what is it exactly that civics is doing wrong when, and, and what we talk about in the book is that it's, it's, it's mostly the approach, the pedico- pedagogical approach, In most civics education programs is not focused on social action. It's not applied learning. It's not practicing voting and talking about contemporary political issues. It's really just a history class, an American history class, where young people are encouraged to memorize facts about the founding founding fathers, various aspects of American history, um, or the history of other places in, in some class that approach is is widely used today but it just doesn't appear to work in terms of encouraging young people to vote so when we're thinking about public policies there is a new model and a new a new way of thinking about civics education that involves more active applied learning that does has proven um at least uh, early on in these these pilot programs these randomized control trials to have positive impacts on the chance that young people vote
0: and and you know i've sort of worked with A variety of different civics approaches, civic engagement approaches, and I know the American Political Science Association has a lot of work on this and scholarship on this. Um, So that the idea of experiential learning, essentially um, putting students on the ground in active roles or in roles in terms of changing, changing their communities, changing something, seems to be. How we might shift our thinking about civic engagement—is that correct? Is that what the research showed?
1: Yeah, that 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 that's right. You know, we, for a long time, this is actually like sort of getting back to uh, a debate, or it aligns with the debate in political scientists, political science, which is you know, for a long time, we've sort of um, gotten really upset about politi- low levels of political knowledge, like. Um, um, uh, young people and others uh, not performing well on sort of the standard uh, battery of measures of political knowledge and what we're arguing is like okay don't forget that stuff like don't forget to teach young people about uh, history and 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 various aspects of of, of of american government that's important but it's not enough it's not sufficient if you want them engaged it's got to be active learning it's got to be on the ground practicing um, being involved in various forms of uh, uh, being engaged in their community. That type of, of model actually, uh, has been shown in the United States, in the democracy prep charter schools, and then also in a few, uh, instances in the United Kingdom that have tried to, uh, they tend to uh, call it social action, uh, over there. Uh, there've been evaluation studies that have shown that, um, that this approach over there as well is increasing, uh, youth voter participation. So some randomized control trials that, that compare individuals who are exposed to these social action, uh, programs, uh, show that they actually, so, um, you know, they, they not only promote uh, young people's willingness to engage in democracy, but they're also, as a side benefit, teaching young people non-cognitive skills, right? So it's, it's the unit, you, you give young people a team and a social issue to tackle, say it's um, uh, something as uh, plain as, you know, um, uh, increasing the amount of recycling in their community that's available in their community, right? A f- fairly uh, vanilla issue. Uh, but nonetheless, an opportunity for them to uh, think about why it is that people don't recycle, why it is that um, uh, how they would go about increasing access to recycling, how they would persuade people to to do that, how, and giving them an opportunity to work together in teams to face obstacles to their to their goal uh, enhances their ability to do that in other contexts as well. Enhances their levels of grit enhances their ability to work well with other people. So these things tend to feed into each other as well. The When done right, these types of active learning increase uh, so civic engagement, right? Um, engagement in the domain. But they also tend to have some side benefits of teaching young people general skills that can translate into other aspects of their life as well.
0: And And this is a really comprehensive book in terms of using a variety of different methodological approaches and also synthesizing a lot of research that has, that's coming from a variety of different disciplines. So it's both interdisciplinary and a sort of multi-method approach. Can you talk about how you and Sunshine designed um, this sort of, you know, really comprehensive approach to not only the methods, but also the disciplinary sort of reach?
1: Yeah, so our desire in writing this book was to get a little bit outside of the political science literature and draw insights from uh, economics, psychology, uh, child development, education policy. And in fact, uh, one of the moments that that contributed to the sort of genesis of this book happened when I was taking in graduate school an education policy course. And we were talking about how non-cognitive skills are so important for uh, performance in school, performance in labor force, other aspects of, of individual well-being. And I said to myself, I'm a political scientist. I wonder if they're important for political behaviors as well. So this was sort of an inflection point where it was, you know, totally a different context and economics of education class thinking about, oh, okay, I wonder if this matters for for, for voting as well. So that was uh, uh, an important part of this um, process that, that really helped us, I think, um, sharpen our argument, uh, to think about what we know from other disciplines. That really helped us to uh, translate this into a political science uh, realm where we're thinking about behaviors that political scientists tend to think about um, much more. So that was really helpful for us. In, in terms of the methodological approach, our goal here was to get our best estimates of, of the effect of various, um, sort of pre-voting, um, experiences and inputs, uh, to, to youth voting, uh, get the best sort of causal estimates that generalize as, as much as we could. Right. Um, but it is pretty clear to us in writing this book, or at least to 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 me for myself, that in doing that, in in desiring to sort of estimate the causal impact of of various programs, the causal impact of various skills or attributes that young people do or don't develop, that there are constraints in in doing so. It's it's not always the case that we have a gold standard randomized control trial uh, at our fingertips. So our desire was to be as comprehensive as possible, to try and uh, use the best, methodological approach that we could. And in many instances, the big challenge was finding a data set where we could measure the things that we wanted simultaneously. You know, the big challenge for uh, samples that political scientists often use is that they often don't think about these types of non-cognitive skills, or at least they they think about them differently, and they haven't measured them uh, as often. And they often measure them just among adults instead of uh, sort of pre-voting young people. And the challenge from you know uh, other disciplines that have thought about non-cognitive skills for a little bit longer is they're often not thinking about civic engagement as a potentially important life outcome. So this was a, this was a a challenge going into it. So we were, you know, in many cases having to use data sets where we were just so lucky that there happened to be a voting uh, question uh, put on through a longitudinal survey of, 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 of young people that was focused on mental health or um, labor force participation or school performance, uh, so, uh, we were often sort of, you know, taking samples that we could from cobbling them together from various, uh, sources, but this was also a part of our desire to do the best job that we could while acknowledging also that there are inherently methodological constraints in pushing forward a new, uh, argument, a new, um, idea, a new literature, uh, uh or pushing forward a literature that already existed, uh, rather. Um, as, so we were trying to take many different approaches, different, uh, sort of, uh, observational methods, various experimental methods, when those were available, to craft this argument together.
0: And and that was, I mean, I found it really useful to see like the different methodological approaches woven together to sort of bolster the research in general. Um, and I I wonder you you have an interesting line in the acknowledgments about having quite a few <laughs> journal rejections forcing you and your co-author, to actually write a book. Um, And I'm wondering if that was dependent on some of the broadness of both your um, methodological approach and the disciplinary approach.
1: Yeah, so it it was a little bit of a challenge at first. Um, We had a couple of uh, very close calls at a couple of journals that... um, you know, very very thoughtful reviews, but um, it was a big challenge to talk about non-cognitive skills um, to an audience that often didn't really think about this uh, the the uh, th- these attributes very much. Uh, so even the term itself, non-cognitive skills, is a little bit confusing. So we would often hear things like, "What do you mean? It's not cognitive." You know, what? You, where where is it? If it's not in the brain, you know, it's wh- what is this thing? And you know, there, we talk about in the book what we should be calling these things and the debate over that, that that's, that's gone on in other other fields. But this was a big challenge, right. To try and think about introducing a new set of attributes that we've kind of ignored for uh, a long period of time that have been uh, explored in other disciplines to bring that to uh, political science. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's, it's also, you know, a standard journal uh, article doesn't have quite the, the, the space to, 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 um, uh, Talk about the different assumptions, the different conceptualizations uh, that are uh, used in, in various methodological approaches. So, uh, you know, in this case, I think rejection worked it out for the for the better. Uh, <laughs> it helped us to craft and hone our thinking and and expand and, and and think about where these non-cognitive skills come from and and whether or not they're teachable and malleable and, and their various aspects that we just couldn't do it in a journal article.
0: Well, I found the book really. Um, interesting and certainly one that that could also be read by or should also be read by many scholars in a variety of different fields, not just in political science, because of, you know, some of these questions around civic engagement, um, education, psychology, and so forth. So I wonder now, John, what you are working on and what your co-authors, Sunshine Hillagus, are working on.
1: Yeah. so uh a bit more of this uh, so um you know there's there's I, th- I think we, we definitely left some uh, lingering questions in the book um some of my more recent researches uh delving even earlier in the life course so a lot of the stuff that we uh, do in the book is um, sort of uh, uh teenage years right so you know mid to you know middle school to high school years i've been I've been interested for a long time about the influence of of childhood experiences we have a Uh, a a long theoretical literature uh, on political socialization about the importance of early life experiences. We don't have as robust of an empirical literature on that. And one, this literature, you know, according to many is is stagnated in in recent years. So I'm doing some work to push forward on how uh, various childhood experiences influence uh, adult voting. Uh Sunshine's working on a variety of different things, thinking about uh um, surveying young people and and thinking about um, um, how to uh measure and promote these uh non cognitive skills uh um, among young people still. So we're we're pressing forward to try and get more young people uh, actively involved in democracy.
0: That sounds great. When <laughs> when you finish the next book, will you come back on the New Books of Political Science Podcast and talk to me about it? For sure. Excellent. Um, I look forward to it. Um, thank you, John Holbein for joining me today to talk about making young voters, converting civic attitudes into civic action published in 2020 by Cambridge university press. I assume this is available obviously at Cambridge university Press's website. Is there perhaps a brick and mortar store that one can access virtually that you would like to give a shout out
1: to? So you can also pick this up at Barnes and Noble, uh, amazon.com, uh, and a variety of other, uh, places where books are available.
0: All right. Thank you, John Holbein, for joining me today on the New Books Network.
1: Thank you very much.